Let's take our Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 14, and we hope to finish up chapter 14 and go into verse 15 today. 2 Kings chapter 14, when we left off in verse 27 last week, we learned that God used another evil king named Jeroboam to save Israel. And it brought us to the very large topic of what theologians call God's sovereignty. Now, you won't see the word sovereignty or sovereign in the Bible, but it means the most high. It means he is over all. If you look at the last few letters of sovereign, it's the word reign, R-E-I-G-N. That's what a king does, isn't it? Well, God reigns over all. He's sovereign. So if you hear God's sovereignty talked about, that means he's all-powerful. There's none above him or equal to him. And we learned a specific thing, or we began to learn a specific thing about his sovereignty, and that is that evil doesn't prevent God's will. It doesn't alter his will. In fact, in the grand scheme of things, because there is evil... And because mankind is evil and is hopeless without divine intervention in the person of Jesus Christ, then responding to evil and directing evil to different ends is all part of God's providence. His sovereignty includes that. He is able to do that. He does not want us to be evil, but because there is evil, he's still in control. And in our study, Jeroboam was evil, but his sin did not keep God from saving Israel by Jeroboam's hand. He used Jeroboam to save Israel from her enemies. Now, I want to show you a couple of other examples of how God took the evil that men would do and turned it in the direction of of accomplishing his perfect will. It's amazing to me. In Genesis chapter 37 and the chapters after that, you read and learn a lot about Joseph, one of uh, Jacob's sons. And Joseph was a victim of a cruel hoax perpetrated by his own brothers, and if you remember, he was, they were jealous of him because he was his father's favorite son and his father made a cloak of many colors for him because he loved him above the other brothers. And the brothers didn't like that and so they threw him into a pit and they took his coat from him, his cloak, and they put goat's blood on it and went back and told their father <clears throat> this wild story. They handed him that coat and said, he's been torn asunder by wild beasts. And they caused their father to grieve the loss of a son who had not died. That's cruel. That's, I can't think of much more cruel than that. And although God was not pleased, in fact, he was uh, angry with the sin of those wicked brothers. He allowed this to happen for a reason. For a reason that Joseph didn't know about, for a reason his brothers 
and Jacob. In fact, nobody knew about it except for God. And Joseph was then sold to a bunch of Ishmaelites as a slave. Now, God wasn't pleased with that either, but he allowed it for a reason. And then he was sold by the Ishmaelites to an Egyptian Potiphar who was one of the chief men of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And this was another evil act, that one of the children of Israel would be sold to a Gentile nation, to the Egyptians, the enemy of God. The ones who would hold his people in bondage for over 400 years. But God allowed that to happen for a reason. And while serving in the Potiphar's house faithfully, Joseph was falsely accused of adultery with the Potiphar's evil wife. And then he was thrown into prison. And he was in prison for about two years when the Pharaoh had a dream and it troubled him greatly. And his own magicians and his own wise men were unable to interpret that dream. So Joseph was called out of the dungeon and was told to interpret the Pharaoh's dream. And because God's hand was on Joseph, he was able to rightly interpret that Pharaoh's dream. And as a reward, the Pharaoh made Joseph the equivalent of the vice president of all of Egypt. He said, you're only second to me in the throne. In other words, I'm still the Pharaoh. But under, apart from that, you can have anything and you can do anything that you desire. Pharaoh saw that Joseph was a wise man and that he was good for the country of Egypt. And so during this famine that Joseph predicted, he was, that was revealed to him by God. That was what Pharaoh's dream was all about, is that there would be a certain time of prosperity and a certain time of famine. And during that famine, Joseph not only saved Egypt, but he saved his own family. He saved his own brothers who had sold him into slavery and lied to their father about his death. And much like our passage in 2 Kings, where wicked Jeroboam was used by God to save Israel, the wicked brothers of Joseph, the wicked Ishmaelites, and the evil Potiphar were used to save Israel as well. And here is the capstone statement that Joseph made about all of those things that befell him. Listen to what he said. This is in Genesis chapter 50, verses 18 through 21, if you're taking notes. Genesis 50, 18 through 21. And his, that's Joseph's brethren, also went and fell down before his face. Now see, they'd fled to Egypt because of the famine. Their dad said, go to Egypt and get us some food. And they said, behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. 
Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them, and he spake kindly unto them. That reminds us of what we're reading here. Jeroboam was an evil king. He didn't take the high places down. He followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He caused Israel to sin. He thought to do evil, just like Joseph's wicked brothers and the Ishmaelites and the Potiphar and the Pharaoh to put the people of uh, to put God's people in bondage, which would happen way later uh, after the time we're reading about in Genesis. So the evil that men thought to do was turned in the direction of God's sovereign plan. They may have thought, boy, we're really going to throw God a curveball here. Oh, he hits him all out of the park, doesn't he? Yeah. But the greatest example of turning evil in the direction of good is found in the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. An evil, false disciple named Judas Iscariot and evil Jewish priests and a wicked Roman ruler named Pontius Pilate all cruelly treated the sinless Son of God and crucified him on the cross, the cruelest creation of man, as one song puts it. And yet this death, which on one hand was totally unjustified, there was no merit to the case against Jesus Christ, the case of blasphemy the Jews made, the case of usurping the Roman emperor's throne, that they tried to get the Romans to believe. He, Jesus wasn't trying to be Caesar. He wasn't trying to be Herod or Pontius Pilate or anyone else. He was the king of the Jews. And on one hand, this unjustified death was wicked, it was evil, it was cruel. But it became our hope of justification from sin. God turned the evil that men did into the salvation of not only those Jews who delivered Jesus to be crucified, but to the Gentiles who crucified him as well. In fact, to as many as would receive him as their Savior, whether they be Jew or Gentile. And now that we've learned that evil does not prevent, it does not alter God's plans, Let's learn something else about God's sovereignty when it comes to evil. And that is this. Just because God does good in spite of evil doesn't mean that those who do evil are excused when God does good. Now let that sink in. If somebody were to say, well, if it weren't for me doing evil then God couldn't have done this wonderful thing for all of these people. Well, first of all, that's not true. That's a false premise. God did not accomplish good because of what we did. He did it in spite of what we've done. He didn't owe us that. The logical end of us doing wrong is condemnation and separation from God for all eternity. That's the logical end of it. That's the just end of it. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, Matthew 18, verse 7, this was Jesus speaking to his disciples. He said, 
Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must needs be that offenses come. Jesus said they have to come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. So what he said is, Woe unto the world because of these offenses, these crimes. It is needful that they happen, but woe to the person who does them anyway. So that person can't say, well, Jesus said it must needs be that offenses come, so I'm excused because he said they would come. No, you're not excused. Jesus is telling his disciples that even though offenses, and that word offense comes from a Greek word, it's spelled like this, S-K-A-N-D-A-L-O-N, scandalon. What does that sound like? Scandal. That's where we get the word scandal from. That even though scandals must come, the man by who they come is still accountable. Now, why must offenses or scandals come? Because man is a sinner. That's why. If man is, all mankind are sinners, and if they live, their scandals, their offenses must come. It's impossible for us to live in this flesh and not sin. But when we sin, We're not excused from it just because God is good and he does good. People who miss the cross, they miss what happened at the cross for salvation, may say something like this. Well, we've all sinned and done wrong, and boy, they're correct. But God's merciful. He'll save everybody in the end. They are not correct. They say, we've done wrong. But God is good, and therefore, we're all going to be okay. That's the I'm okay, you're okay church right there. And that's not true. They miss what happened at the cross. They don't acknowledge what Jesus did, the importance of that work. Now, let's look back in our text, 2 Kings 14, and look in verse 28. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did and his might, how he warred and how he recovered Damascus and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? If you wanted to give this Jeroboam a nickname, you could say he's the king of recovery. He recovered things that already belonged to Israel. Now, if you were to lose something at work, let's say you owned a business and you lost one of your favorite power tools, you couldn't find it, and you spent half a day looking for that, and you finally found it. Have you gained anything? No, you found your power tool, and it's wonderful news, but what actually happened is you lost about three or four hours of productive work looking for something that you already had in the first place. So even though you may say, oh, I found my power tool, I'm so happy. When you look up, you've wasted a lot of time. If you hadn't lost it in the first place, you could have gotten some more work done. And so you think about Jeroboam recovering Damascus and Hamath. Oh, Israel was glad to get it back. It was wonderful that they got the land back, but it was already theirs. It didn't belong to those enemies in the first place. But Jeroboam 
gain back territory that had been lost because of sin. So it might be very easy for him to say, well, if it hadn't have been for me, we wouldn't have gotten Damascus and Hamath back. But lest he be deceived, he didn't get Damascus and Hamath back by his obedience. He got it back by God's gracious intervention on behalf of Israel, because that's what all this is about. Is God intervening and on behalf of Israel, saving them from their enemies, gaining their land back for them when they were at their worst. They had a sinful king, the people by and large, not all of them. There's always a remnant that was faithful to God. But by and large, the people of Israel and Judah were worshiping false gods at various times. It said he recovered Damascus, look in your text, and Hamath, which belonged to Judah for Israel. Now, I couldn't help but notice that. He took a land or two places that belonged to Judah, the southern kingdom. Now, where was Jeroboam a king? He was in the northern kingdom in Israel. You remember they're divided. Israel and Judah are two separate nations, though they were originally one. And I thought, why would Jeroboam care anything about how much land Judah lost? Why would that bother him in the least? And I don't know that it did. I think he was probably glad to just get some more land. I mean, what does a conqueror do but conquer? They want more land and more land and more land. Adolf Hitler would have taken over the whole world if he could have. So would Joseph Stalin. So would the Japanese have done uh, before World War II. Taken over the whole world. The conqueror is never satisfied. But Jeroboam recovered these two places for Judah. Shouldn't he be concerned only with Israel, the northern kingdom, and the land they lost? Remember, the restoration of these two places was done by God through Jeroboam. All caps, T-H-R-O-U-G-H. It was done by God through Jeroboam as an act of God's own grace, and he was honoring the word he, that was spoken by Jonah at some point. And we saw that last week up in verse 20. That this was all part of a prophecy Jonah spoke, even though we don't see it written in the book of Jonah, we know that it was a prophecy because God said it was. It was as if the restoration of Damascus and Hamath pointed to a time when Israel and Judah would once again share a common interest. Isn't that wonderful? Why would this evil king of another country care what land his sister nation lost when they're at war with each other, when they don't like each other? It wasn't him, it was God doing it. It was God pointing to a time when Israel had once been one, now they were two, that they would once again be one. And that the interest of Israel and the interest of, of, of Judah would be the same. What affected one would affect the other. In fact, that's found in Hosea chapter 1 verse 11. We've been studying that 
on Sunday mornings. Hosea 1 verse 11, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Absolutely amazing. That one head they will appoint is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that's the time that is be, that's shown to us in a figure here when Jeroboam takes land that belongs to Judah and gets it back for them. They have a common interest, even though he didn't think so at the time, I'm sure. And then verse 29, it tells us, And Jeroboam slept with his fathers, even with the kings of Israel, and Zechariah his son reigned in his stead. So the second Jeroboam dies, and he's replaced by his son. Now, let's look at chapter 15, and we're going to pick back up with King Azariah, who's also known as King Uzziah. We got to look at him a lesson or two ago, and then it kind of stopped, like the soap opera. You know, it switches over to another. And I'm not encouraging you to watch soap operas, by the way. I'm just telling you, this is, this is the first thing that came to my mind when we go from one scene to the other to the other. You have to, you have to kind of keep up with it. So chapter 15 and verse 1, In the twenty and seventh year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, began Azariah, son of Amaziah, king of Judah, to reign. So we left off learning about Azariah back in verse 22. So if you hear me call him Uzziah, it's the same king. Uzziah, Jezariah, or Azariah. And now we're going to pick back up with his reign over Judah. Sixteen years old was he when he began to reign, and he reigned two and fifty years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jecoliah of Jerusalem. Now we had already learned that Azariah began to rule when he was 16. We also learned that he regained a place called Elath. And the 52 years he reigned over Judah was the second longest a king had ever reigned over Judah or Israel. The longest was Manasseh. And we haven't come to him yet, but he reigned 55 years. So when we get to chapter 21, we'll learn about Manasseh. And that's also a, a wonderful story, by the way, and I won't say anything else about it. It said his mother's name was Jecoliah. Ezariah's mother's name was Jecoliah there in verse 2. And we see her name mentioned only one other time, and that's over in Second Chronicles 26 verse 3, which tells the same story here. It gives us some more details that we don't have in Second Kings. Now let's look at verse 3, and then we'll make some comment on this material, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. So now we learn that Azariah was a decent king. He did right in the sight of the Lord. He was like his father in a good way, but he was lacking. Because if he was like his father... That means he wasn't worse than his father, and he did not exceed the works of his father. He was like him, and his father was Amaziah, and he was a good king. But let's recall what was said about how good he was. Back in 2 Kings 14, verse 3, I'll just read that to you. It's back in chapter 14, verse 3. This is what was said about Azariah's father, Amaziah. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David. 
his father, he did according to all things as Joash his father did. So Azariah did right. His father Amaziah had done right. So Azariah did just like his father. But his father did right, however, not like David, not like King David. So what does it tell us by implication about Azariah? He didn't do right like David either. He did right, but not like David. He was not like David. Uh, neither he nor his father nor his grandfather. So for three generations of kings, not one of them ever aspired to be great like their father David. They were content to be just like dad. In other words, dad, dad didn't really stir up a whole lot of trouble, but... What he did himself was good. He was a good guy. And I, I just want to be like him. I don't want to be great like King David. just want to be good like Azariah. Set the bar low. And what we have and what we're going to read in verse 4 is a glaring omission that Joash, the grandpa, Azariah, the dad, or excuse me, Amaziah the dad, and then this king Azariah all had in common. Here's something they all had in common. Look with me in verse 4. Save that the high places were not removed, the people sacrificed and burnt incense still on the high places. You see that word still? That means they were still doing it. They'd done it before and before, and they were still doing it. They had been given no reason to quit. Worshipping in the high places. They weren't worshipping God according to the dictates of the commandments and the law. They were worshipping a God of their own making according to their own conscience in a place that God did not ordain. God never told them, hey, go up to the high places and worship me. No, he told them exactly how to worship him in the house of the Lord. And so all three of those kings in one generation after the other, the left high places standing. They let the people engage in false worship in those high places. So it wasn't what they did that was the problem, because the Scripture tells us they did that which was right in the sight of the Lord. It was what they didn't do that puts an asterisk on their biographies. They were good, but we have an asterisk. In other words, we have a little note that tells us, hey, there, there's something about that. There's a statement that needs to be made to modify just how good they were. And here it is, verse 4. They didn't take away the high places, and the people still worshipped in those high places. You know, it takes a lot of spiritual maturity just for you, just for me, to do right in our daily lives, even when our flesh tells us just give in. And it's by God's grace that we have the ability to do right. It's His Spirit working in His people that we have that ability to do right. But it takes even more spiritual maturity, a whole lot more, for a leader to demand that his people also do right. It's not enough for the king, for the boss, for the dad... I'm, think, I'm talking about positions of leadership for the mom, but in, in the home where you have the dad and the mom present and the children, it's not enough for the leader to say, well, I'm just going to make sure I do right. I'm not going to really get into anybody else's business 
Boy, you have a mess when that happens, don't you? It's not enough for him to do right and allow his subjects to do wrong. Listen to what was written in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Because this is the standard God set. 1 Peter 15, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. He wrote, But as he which hath called you is holy, okay, so that's God doing right, so be ye holy in all manner of your conversation. That means your walk with your, your living. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Peter was quoting from the 20th chapter of Leviticus in verse 7. And, but I'm going to read verses 6 and 7 from that chapter, from Leviticus 20. I'll read verses 6 and 7. And the soul that turneth after such as have familiar spirits and after wizards to go a-whoring after them, I will even set my face against that soul and will cut him off from among his people. Sanctify yourselves, therefore, and be ye holy, for I am the Lord your God. So go back in your mind, in your recollection of the Scriptures, to a time when God was giving the law to the children of Israel. God was holy. He always has been. That never will change. But he also commanded his children to be holy. He set the example for kings right there. You be holy and you command your subjects to be holy. And God could have just said, well, you know what, I'm... I mean, he couldn't and still be God, but hypothetically, had God just said, you know, I'm holy, and I'm just going to leave it at that, and we'll let these little critters do whatever it is that comes to their mind. Well, things wouldn't have worked out like they have at all. That's not God's nature. God said, be ye holy, for I'm holy. That's the standard. And if you notice... In the verses I read you from Leviticus, God not only forbade the children of Israel from going a-whoring after familiar spirits and wizards. Now remember, these children of Israel in Azariah's day were still worshiping in the high places. They were doing that very thing. Just It's just said differently. God not only said, don't do it, but he said, I'll kill you if you do. <laughs> there, there was a penalty attached to going a-whoring after familiar spirits and Wizards, witchcraft, all of that. But on the other hand, when you look at Joash, Amaziah, and Azariah, the king we're studying now, they were content to do good. But they did not do as God did when it came to the people worshiping in the high places. All three kings should have warned those people and said, out, and executed the ones who disobeyed. If they were going to go by what God's pattern was. In fact, if each of those kings had done that right off the bat, as soon as they took the throne, so they send out a decree across this whole land, anybody who worshiped any other god but the one true God, Jehovah, the one who delivered our fathers from Israel, he will be executed. Then the rest of the people would be warned that the king means business because God means business. Now you may say, well, that was easy for God because he's God. What about, what about David? 
After all, these kings are compared to David, and it said they didn't do like their father David. David wasn't God, although he was a man after God's own heart, according to what's written in Acts 13.22. Listen, do you think David didn't lose some friends and have others angry with him because not only was he righteous, but he condemned their idolatry. He said, you're, you're not going to worship idols. He tore things down. People were, were killed, and I mean, David meant business. He lo- I promise you, he lost friends. He had family members angry with him, just like it would be today. You know, you start with your home. If you read your Bible, but you allow your children to read pornography, don't say, well, at least I'm not doing it. I'm, I'm like Azariah. I'm doing that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Well, if you're allowing them to do that, you're not doing that which is right in the sight of the Lord. Any more than if you were reading it. You're just as wrong as Azariah for letting the high places stand and letting the people worship there. What about your workplace where you supervise others? Well, this ought to pinch you if you're not awake. If you, use, if you use clean language, let's just take that. That's a good indicator. If you use clean language when you speak, but you allow your employees to use profanity in the workplace, then you're doing just like Azariah, aren't you? Now, in my workplace, I'm the low man on the totem pole, and I like it that way. I've been up here, and I like this. I like to be the worker bee. But from time to time, I'm tasked with the job of being a field training officer for a new hire, whether it's somebody who's a rookie who just got out of the academy or somebody who's been a police officer somewhere else, and they transfer to us, and we have to show them how we do things here. And so I have an orientation with whomever that may be, with my new rookie. We go sit back in the conference room, and I have a list of things I go over. I tell them things that you shouldn't have to tell a grown person, but I do. And there's a reason for each one of them. And I'll say I, need a, I want a clean uniform on a clean body with a shaven face every time you come. If we get dirty today, that's okay with me if your boots look terrible, but don't bring yesterday's dirt in tomorrow. Tomorrow, we're clean again. And if we get dirty, then we're going to clean up, and we're going to show back up shiny and bright tomorrow. And so we get down the list, and then I come to the place of the language. I'll tell them, we're not going to use foul language. I've made hundreds and hundreds, probably closer to the thousand, of arrests in my career. And haven't had to use foul language in order to get somebody to do what I wanted them to do. That, uh, that circle at the end of that barrel usually convinced them. And what I tell them, it's the same thing I'll tell you. When you use profanity, you are showing a lack of education. You're showing a lack of self-control. Because I promise you, those same people who use foul language can walk into a courthouse and stand before a judge and never utter a word. They can come to church and not cuss while they're in church. So it's a matter of self-control. I don't listen to them say, well, you know, I can't help it. It's the way I was brought up. That's just the way I talk. Or I'm from New York. Or I'm from over here or there. We don't use foul language. It shows a lack of education, a lack of self-control, and it is unprofessional. And you know what? For the five weeks or the two weeks or however long I have them, I don't hear it. it isn't it something? 
what you demand of someone is what they'll do if you have a position of rightful authority over them. And so I want to do that because I don't just want to use clean language. I want somebody who I'm the boss of to use clean language. Now, when I'm done with them, if they go to a shift and I hear them cussing and all that, I don't have any control over that. That's their sergeant's fault. That's their lieutenant's fault or their captain's fault and and on up the chain. But I think you get the picture there. So to wrap this thought up, remember, do what's right in the sight of the Lord, but also demand it from those over whom you have rightful authority. And if you're a father, you're a mother, you have rightful authority over your children. You don't need to pray about that. You just need, as Pastor said last week, and somebody put it in a little uh, meme there on Facebook, that's not the time to pray, it's the time to obey when it comes to doing God's will. And from the leadership in this church, let's apply it to us. If, if we teach against your sin up here, and maybe even come to you privately for a rebuke, then all we're doing is what God tells us to do. He says rebuke them before others that all may fear. Now Jesus gives us the way to handle that. We go to someone privately first. The way we'd like to handle it is just to preach it in here and you go, oh, Okay, well, I didn't know that was wrong. Well, I won't do that anymore and never have to talk to you about it. But if we found out somebody was uh, shacked up with someone else or whatever it might be, and we went to them privately, like Jesus said, you go to them one-on-one, take you a witness. If that's not going to work, take it before the church, and then you exclude them as a heretic. So there's a process for doing that. But if we don't do that as leadership, as a, in our position of leadership, then we're doing just like Azariah. And yes, it's God's will for the leaders of the church, for pastors, elders, so forth, to live in a holy manner. But we also should expect you to do that as well. And when I'm sitting down there listening to the preaching, I know he expects me to do what the Bible says too, and I think it's a reasonable expectation. And we, by God's grace, will not leave the high places standing in this church because we don't want the people worshiping there. Look at verse 5. If you've lost your place or just joined us, we're in 2 Kings 15, and now we're in verse 5. And the Lord smote the king so that he was a leper unto the day of his death and dwelt in a several house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the house judging the people of the land. And the Lord smote the king so that he was a leper unto the day of his death. Boy, does this underscore the truth we just learned. Azariah was the king of Judah. He had within his power to destroy all the high places and demand that the people worship the one and only true God. And not doing that was his sin. And so when God smote him with leprosy, 
God is reinforcing what we just learned. Yes, he did right in the sight of the Lord, but not like, but he left the high places standing. He was still in sin. He couldn't say, well, Lord, you just should weigh out the good that I've done against the bad I've done. And you'll find that the good I've done equals out. That's not how it works. That's not how God's holiness works. And God smiting Azariah with leprosy was a reminder of the sin. And in this case, it was the sin of omission, which led to the sin of commission. What he left off led others to do wrong. And you know, in the Bible, God sometimes puts leprosy on a person as a sign of judgment. Other times he puts leprosy on them to show them his power as uh, Moses, I believe it was, put his hand in and drew it back out and the leprosy was gone. But he did this to Miriam, Moses' sister, back in Numbers chapter 12, because she and Aaron had spoken out against Moses marrying a Midianite woman. Now in our text here in verse 5, it says, after Azariah got the leprosy, that he dwelt in a several house. That word several doesn't mean he dwelt in a bunch of houses. It means he dwelt in one that was severed from the place he would normally live, a separate house. In fact, more about this is told to us over in Second Chronicles chapter 26. And when you read that later, you read verses 6 through 15, and you'll read about all these wars that Uzziah won as king or Azariah, and all the land and honor he gained. But beginning in verse 16, in Second Chronicles 26, beginning in verse 16, you read about why, specifically why, Azariah was made a leper. And here's what it says. But when he was strong... His heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. Now you remember Satan's, or Lucifer at the time, Lucifer's chief sin was pride and it was followed by covetousness. They're, they're sisters. And Azariah here, Uzziah, was prideful. So he also coveted something that only the high priests, well, the priesthood, was allowed to do. And that is to go into that temple and burn incense. That wasn't the king's place to do that. In other words, just like Lucifer was in heaven before he was cast out, Azariah was not content with his place in life. He was a powerful king, and as told to us in Second Chronicles 26, by the might of God's hand, he defeated many enemies and recovered lots of land. He did all these things he thought were good, and they were, but he still left the high places standing. He was powerful against these enemies, but against the sins of his own people, he said, hands off, laissez-faire. And so as loosely as Azariah took God's word concerning the high places... He also took a slack view of God's word concerning conduct in the house of the Lord. And next week, 
we'll come back and continue with why Azariah got leprosy. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good attendance of those who came. And Lord, we also esteem highly those who join us online and pray that that they were able to hear everything that was taught. And Lord, we pray that you would take these truths from your word and that you would cause us to meditate upon them and that we would accept them, Lord, as truth and not argue about them, not debate whether we want to obey them, but simply by your grace and by the leading of your spirit, just say yes to what your word says and see the benefit we have in our own lives, the peace we have when we're walking in fellowship with the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen.